This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester. Uh, Well, my name is Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection, and it's uh, so good to be with you here this morning. Um, If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend the documentary, My Octopus Teacher. How many of you have seen My Octopus Teacher on Netflix? Oh, this is good. It's only a few of you. So if you're just getting in on this, I mean, you're at the avant-garde, right? Like this is, this is the very beginning. So um, highly recommend this documentary. It's about this, this documentarian who basically he's, he's burned out. He's exhausted with his kind of career and, and life, that sort of thing. And so he takes up this practice of every day going swimming in the frigid waters of the, uh, the ocean near his home in South Africa. And so one day he's, he's swimming around and he sees this incredible thing. He can't take his eyes off of it. He sees this octopus, you know, with her tentacles wrapped kind of all around her in a ball, clutching like 70 shells. I mean, just totally covering her body with shells, camouflaging herself. And this had never been filmed before. Nobody had ever noticed any, um, you know, octopus behaving like this. So he's transfixed. And so he made it kind of his practice that every day he would go out looking for her and just kind of noticing the way she interacted with her environment. And, uh, and it's called My Octopus Teacher because gradually his sense of burnout and exhaustion began to lift. And he began to have just a deeper sense of the interconnectedness of life through this practice. It's a really fun uh, family film, great ending. Um, Well, so here's why I bring that up this morning. This morning is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so this is a Sunday that we devote every year to talking about the issue of abortion. And so I know Brett mentioned this as some of you are coming in. I'll I'll just mention it again. Um, This whole sermon is about the issue of abortion. I I don't plan to say anything graphic at all, but I just want to let you know that in case that this, you know, might not be the, the right time if you have young kids, that sort of thing. Um, But every year, we devote a Sunday to talking about this, and it's a really heavy thing to do, right? It's a heavy political season that we've been in. This has been a heavy month. And then this particular conversation is just fraught with anxiety and fear and tension. It's heavy. And what I want to do this morning is kind of step back from the exhaustion of that and to immerse ourselves, like this filmmaker, to immerse ourselves in the world of Scripture, to immerse ourselves in this story of creation, fall, and redemption, and to take a look at this issue, which is usually framed in a very political way, to take a look at this issue through that biblical lens of creation, fall, and redemption. And what I'm hoping is that, like the filmmaker, we walk away from this with a new sense of clarity. We bring a new sense of clarity to this very difficult issue. I think what you find is like this octopus. When you look into Scripture, you see something that is so captivating, so compelling in that storyline, you just can't look away from it. So let's start with creation. Um, You can open your Bibles to Psalm 8. You have Bibles under your chair, and and I'll be referring to that. Uh, Most conversations about abortion start in the wrong place. So sometimes they start with an attack. 
You know, like, well, you just want to control women's bodies or you don't care about babies. And an attack is not a very good way to start a conversation, right? And so other times the conversations start with, you know, questions about rights. You know, what rights does the government have to tell anybody else what they can or can't do with their body? And that, that's a good question, but I'd suggest that's not a very good place to start this conversation. We have to back up. We have to talk about something that's much more fundamental, something that affects the baby just as much as the mother, that affects the father just as much as them, that affects the potential grandparents, the politicians, even you and me. We have to ask this deeper question, and that question is this. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And what we find when we look at Scripture and we look at Psalm 8 is that to be human, to be human is to be the most glorious, most wonderful, most beautiful creature in all of creation. That's what it means to be human. So look at Psalm 8. In this psalm, there's this, David has this back and forth between the great and the small, between the weak and the wonderful. So King David begins with this exclamation of praise. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And his mind naturally goes to the skies. I mean, you can imagine him standing outside his palace, looking up on this clear summer night. His mind goes to the skies, and he says, um, You have set your glory above the heavens. Have you had this experience of sitting out under a, a starry sky? I used to work at a camp in Maine. It was like two hours from the nearest stoplight. There's very little artificial light there. It was the first time in my life that I could see the Milky Way, you know, cresting across the middle of the sky. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice where David's attention goes next. From the heavenly skies to the cries of babies. Out of the mouths of children and infants, you have established a stronghold of praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. You know, it's like a weird transition, right? It's surprising. How did we get here? What do babies have to do with the foe and the avenger? But what we see is that David is saying that the, the skies, the natural world, proclaims praise to this majestic God but so does new life in the city of God, and it puts fear into the hearts of her enemies because the enemies of Israel realize God's presence is here. Life is here. Something is beginning. David continues, When I look at your heavens, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? What are human beings that you care for them? He's saying that in light of this, all of this beauty and all of this glory of this immense universe, what place do any of us have? I mean, have you ever thought that? You look up at this huge starry sky and you wonder, like, how am I significant at all? I am just a speck of dust in this universe. What place do we have in the presence of all this creative power and energy that brings these forces into being? And the answer that Psalm 8 gives is the same answer as Genesis 1 and 2, that you, speck of dust in the universe, you, human being, you are at the center of it all. 
that all of this, all of creation was made for you. God makes the world, and on the sixth day, he puts you in it. At the end, once everything is ready and set, look at verse 5. You made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, and yet crowned us with glory and honor. Made just a little lower than God himself. Humans and humans alone in all of creation are made in God's image. Nothing else can claim that. So in this universe that is 93 billion light years wide, I mean, consider that, 93 billion light years wide, in that universe, you are the most glorious created thing. So glorious that God himself was not ashamed to become like you. So glorious that God did not wish to exist without you. So glorious that God it wasn't beneath him to share his glory with you. But in fact, that's his purpose all along, to share himself, his glory, with you for all eternity. That's where this conversation needs to begin. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is mankind? What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? The glory of the human person is so compelling, so wonderful, you can't look away. You can't look away. It transfixes your gaze. And so with that foundation, with that foundation, the critical question for us to ask is to turn to this unborn fetus or embryo, this single cell even, and say, is this human? Does this have that, that glory that only God can give, that dignity that only God can give? And in this case, we don't need the Bible to answer that question for us. We know unequivocally, yes, that is a human being. Whether a single cell or a clump of cells or a fetus, that is a human being. It can't just be tissue because tissue doesn't develop into what we recognize as a human being. Tissue doesn't do that. And it can't simply be a part of the mother's body because its DNA matches somebody else, somebody new. We have to recognize that even this single cell is human from the very beginning, from the moment of fertilization. We're looking at a human being. And the fact that life starts so small and insignificant is not a problem here. I mean, remember Psalm 8. The whole point of this psalm is to say that the smallness of us in light of this huge universe makes our significance shine that much brighter. The same is true for that single cell in her mother's body. Her significance shines all the brighter because of her smallness. Praise the Lord. And so if we turn back to the abortion conversation, notice the clarity that comes here. The argument, this is, the argument is simple. It's this, it's that all human beings are like this. All human beings have fundamental dignity that necessitates the right to life. Step two, the unborn are human beings. And so step three, therefore, they have the right to life. That's the clarity 
that this offers, that this perspective offers. And so any conversation about rights has to include the rights of this unborn child. And every, any conversation about really difficult, tragic circumstances, any conversation like that has to ask, do these circumstances merit taking a human life? And any conversation about whether or not the government should get involved has to reckon with the fact that it's the government's responsibility to protect the lives of those within her borders. And so by looking at the glory of the human person, we find this wonderful clarity in a very difficult conversation. When you see the glory of the human person, you can't look away. It's captivating. And it's the foundation of everything we believe about law and ethics. So let's move now from creation to fall. And here we're departing from Psalm 8, and we're just kind of looking at the biblical storyline as a whole. What does the fall mean for our conversations about abortion? And to start, I just want to recognize up front that I know that some of you might be thinking, Will, what do you know about this? As a man, what could you know about those hard circumstances? And obviously there's some truth here. There's, there's things that I can't know personally. But I want to say this, that I do know something. Because I was born to a single mom living in poverty who had no idea how she would care for me and my sister. And I regularly reflect on the courage that it took her to bring me into this world. And so I don't know everything, but I know something about this. I've experienced it myself. But more than that, I want to say this, that I am so sorry that I repent, that I am so sorry for every sin, every wrongdoing, both personal and structural, that has led to any woman anywhere thinking that abortion was her only or best option. And I invite all of us to repent this morning. And if you're someone who's had an abortion or you've encouraged somebody or helped somebody else to do that, I want to say that this is a church where you are not going to be shamed. You are not going to be shamed here. But we want to grieve that loss with you. We want to grieve that loss with you. And we want to look with you to Jesus, who can offer healing that we all need. We repent because no abortion happens in a vacuum. No abortion is simply the choice of one person to end another person's life. Because every abortion occurs within a system of millions of choices and decisions that dishonor the dignity of human life. Things like the idolatry of money, which we call greed. Things like, you know, the, the idolatry of independence or freedom or success that is so endemic in our country. Things like racism and misogyny and lust and pornography. These are the pillars that hold up the system of abortion. And in one way or another, we are all implicated in those evils. We are all implicated in those evils. And so we repent. And this is also why abortion is not the only justice issue. Racism, poverty, education, healthcare, prison reform, our response to COVID, housing equity, immigration, the environment, welcoming re refugees and asylum seekers. We could go on and on and on. 
All of these concern the sanctity of human life. And so we might have different issues that we're personally passionate about, and that's okay. And we might have different issues that, that we think are kind of more important than others. And that's okay, too. We should dialogue about that. We should talk to one another about that. But the responsibility of the church is to stand for the sanctity of life wherever life is dishonored. Wherever that sanctity and dignity is dishonored, we stand for all of it. And so if I can just kind of speak bluntly for a moment. You know, this summer, our leaders really challenged us to think more deeply about the sin and evil of racism in our country. And I want to commend those of you who are here for whom that was a really hard conversation. I want to commend you for staying in dialogue with your leaders and for receiving that challenge. I know that that was not easy. But regarding abortion, I would actually like to speak to members of my own kind of millennial generation, to our Gen Z folks, to some some of our more progressive-minded people here, and say that regarding this issue, we have not given abortion the moral weight that it deserves. I mean, it is way, way easier in Gen Z and millennial culture to talk about the sin of racism than it is to talk about the sin of abortion, the evil of abortion. I mean, if you want to go home and really stir up Thanksgiving dinner, you know how to do it, right? You go home and bring up white supremacy, and that'll stir up Thanksgiving dinner. But if you want to stir up your Zoom, you know, happy hour, then bring up state-sanctioned abortion. That'll stir people up. Obviously, justice is about more than just abortion, but it's not about less. And I think those groups that I just mentioned, we need to think more deeply about this issue. We need to let it grip our hearts more than it has. And for what it's worth, I am telling my own story here. So when I came back to Res six years ago, I mean, I... um, I I was pro-life, I would have said that, but I was really, I was kind of ambivalent about this issue. I didn't always like the way it got talked about here. You know, I was kind of ambivalent about whether we could even overturn Roe v. Wade and if that would be a good strategy. I had issues that I was kind of more concerned about myself. And so when I heard this call to go to the March for Life in Chicago, I was not excited. I didn't want to put my body in the middle of a culture war. But I went. I went initially out of obedience. And until this year, because of COVID, I've gone every year since. I've gone every year since because I've realized that this is an incredibly important issue that I was ignoring. And I want to give you three things that caused me to reconsider the importance of abortion. They all start with the letter S. It's severity, it's scope, and it's scale. So it's severity. You know, issues like poverty obviously have an an incredible effect on health outcomes, that sort of thing. But when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about the direct taking of a human life. Not that it harms human life in all these ways, but it is a direct killing of a life. It's severe. When we talk about abortion, we're looking at, you know, the scope. We're looking at a whole class of people in our country the unborn, a whole class of people 
whose rights are expressly not protected by our laws. And then thinking about scale. So it was almost exactly one year ago that the first COVID case was discovered in Seattle. And since that time, as you know, over 400,000 people have died through this tragic pandemic. But last year, twice that number died because of abortion. And the same has been true for since 1973, Roe v. Wade. For twice that many, every single year, year after year after year. Now, some will say if we really cared about reducing abortion, we'd focus on poverty. We'd focus on poverty. We'd focus on health care. That's what it's going to take to reduce abortions. And there's some truth there that would reduce abortions, but it would not eliminate them. I mean, let me push back on that idea just for, for two reasons. One, it's true that most women who, when, they, when they're asked, why did you get an abortion? Most women will say it's because of financial strain. That's about 30%. But almost just as many will say it just wasn't the right time for me to bring another child into my family. Here's a, here's a second reason. I mean, if you look at countries like Sweden and Norway, you know, these countries that have really highly developed welfare systems, even those countries have incredibly high abortion rates. So it's simply not true that if we focused on poverty, we'd eliminate abortion. We can help. We should focus on poverty. It's an issue that affects the sanctity of life, but that doesn't mean that we should ignore the issue of abortion. And so to anyone who, you know, you just feel a little defensive right now, like I'm, I'm pushing your buttons, I just, I just want you to hear very clearly from me that my purpose today is not to shame you. My purpose today is not to shame you. But I simply want to challenge you in the way that our church challenged all of us this summer with regard to racism. Can you look at the evil of abortion? Can you see it? Can you name it? Can you overcome that shame you feel around certain others to speak out about it in front of them? Because the one thing you cannot do, the one thing you cannot do with any justice issue is look away. You cannot look away. So let's... So when you look at any issue, right, when you look at any justice issue, it is easy to fall into despair. Like, can change actually come? When you look at something like abortion, which is so enmeshed in our society, that even Supreme Court justices would say, you know, we can't upend this because this is essential to what it means for Americans to flourish. When you look at something that's that tied to our society, it's easy to think, will this ever change? Can we actually do anything at all? It's easy to despair. And that's why we need this third move of the biblical story. Creation, fall, and redemption. Because through Jesus, through his victory on the cross, through his death and resurrection, through his coming again, things will change. Things will change. Justice or injustice will be overturned. And we're going to get to be part of victories along the way. And we'll rejoice in that. But we also recognize that victory, it belongs to Jesus. He's already won. He's going to win. 
And so regardless of what happens in the next four years, our job isn't to win. We leave that to him. Our job is to witness. As we fight for justice, we witness to the one who has won. We witness to Jesus in his victory. And so what does that look like? What does that look like in everyday life? Well, that's a question that I've tried to answer with our students in Res Youth. And so every year, you know, we didn't do it this year, but every year I take our students to Washington, D.C., and we participate in the March for Life with 100,000 other people, a lot of young people. And later in that weekend, we, we worship at a historically black church, and we spend a whole afternoon meditating at the Museum of African American History and Culture. We spend a whole weekend thinking about what does a, a Christian witness look like in our day? And so this morning, I've invited one of our college students who's gone with us on these trips to come and share a very ordinary story, to share a very ordinary story about a conversation that she's had on her college campus. Because I think Ella's story really captures what it looks like when hope, hope and redemption is, is what characterizes our conversation. So Ella, why don't you come up and share with us? Can we welcome Ella? My name is Ella Johnson, and I'm a freshman at Carroll University, and I've been going to res for most of my life. The issue of abortion came up in my English class this semester, and based on what I heard there, most of my fellow classmates didn't know very much about the issue especially in regards to the pro-life stance. I was given a chance to discuss it personally with a friend of mine when I got dinner together and the subject came up. She seemed genuinely curious and surprised to discover my pro-life views and asked me if I'd be willing to have a conversation with her about why I believe what I do. I was happy to agree, so she began to ask me questions. Do you believe all abortions should be illegal? What about in cases of rape? Instead of going straight to these surface-level questions that often distract from the primary issue in conversations like these, I decided to start at the foundation, because that is where the majority of disagreement stems from. I told her that in order to have this conversation about the morality of abortion, we have to first take a look at this base level of the argument, the core of where pro-life and pro-choice beliefs differ. I explained that as someone who is pro-life, I believe that life begins at the moment of conception. Then I asked her uh, what she believed when it came to that particular point. She admitted that her beliefs were different, that in her eyes a fetus only a few weeks old is just a clump of cells. I expected as much, but then I asked her that if she acknowledged that life really did begin at conception, would it make sense for abortion to be illegal? She couldn't bring herself to believe in life beginning at conception, but at the same time she could understand where I was coming from. The conversation continued, but at a certain point, I noticed that she was struggling to find her words, and I could sense her growing distress. I stopped the conversation and told her that if this was making her uncomfortable in any way, to tell me, and that we could talk about something else. She seemed surprised at my offer and told me that it meant a lot for me to take her feelings into consideration. I allowed her to be the first to speak next, giving her the opportunity to choose where to lead the discussion. Our conversation eventually faded to a different subject for the rest of the night but my friends seemed more comfortable around me now. Trust was established between us. I hadn't crossed any boundaries and she hadn't crossed any of mine. I wanted to continue sharing because I had a lot to say on the subject, but I'm glad that we chose to stop where we did. Although we have not furthered our discussion on the subject since, 
She has continued to be my friend and we have grown closer. She has even expressed interest in attending a church event with me in the future, although she is agnostic. I am glad to say I may not have won the argument entirely, but I succeeded in earning her trust and her friendship, and that is what ultimately allows us to have conversations like these in the future. It's what I love about Ella's story is it's so ordinary. I mean, you can imagine having that conversation with someone at your workplace or with a family member. And what I also love is that, that Ella's story has all of the hallmarks of hope. She, didn't go, she had the courage to even have this conversation because she knew she didn't have to win the argument. She just had to witness to the goodness and dignity of life. That's all she was called to do. And when she noticed that her friend was getting uncomfortable, didn't know what to say, like, like maybe her worldview was kind of crashing in, you know, Ella, Ella didn't go in for the win. She didn't try to steal victory there. But she acknowledged her friend's humanity, her friend's own process of thinking through these issues. And with that act of neighborly, you know, love and hospitality, Ella honored her friend's humanity. And it's a model for us. This is what a conversation that's characterized by hope looks like. This is what Christian witness in our world looks like. And I could tell a lot of other stories, too. I mean, during COVID this year, our church, right in the warehouse, right over, over here, our beloved Sanctity of Life team started a baby bank, which is basically this place where expecting mothers and fathers can come and just get free diapers and other baby supplies. And so we've served scores of men and women here, letting them know that we are with them before, during, and after their pregnancy. We're with them the whole way through. And we've even partnered with uh, one of our friends, Pastor Michael Wright in the Austin neighborhood of Chicago. We're doing the same thing there, and you can donate supplies to be part of that work. That's a picture of hopeful witness. Here's another example. Earlier this year, after years and years of praying, with some of our members showing up in person to pray, the Anchor Abortion Clinic, which is on Roosevelt Road in Glen Ellen, shut its doors. After years and years of praying, right? Like, hallelujah, God answers prayer, and he lets us be part of these small victories along the way. And we don't have to win every battle because we know that he's one, and we are waiting for that heavenly city to descend, where every injustice is overturned, where every tear is wiped from our faces. We are witnessing in hope to that reality, and that hope is what characterizes every justice effort we have. Because when you see this story, when you see the glory of mankind, the glory of the human person, when you see the destruction caused by sin, and when you see the hope of redemption in Jesus, it's too compelling. It's too wonderful. It's too beautiful. It's too true. You just can't look away. Praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.